Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this uh, um, annual Sydney Ball lecture. Uh, it's a particular pleasure for me as uh, uh, head of department to welcome you all, particularly seeing so many students uh, being interested in the topic of today and uh, seeing also some colleagues uh, across the university um, joining us uh, today to discuss uh, where next uh, for social policy. Before I start, I was reminded of some housekeeping rules. Uh, usually, you're supposed to tell everyone uh, to be aware of the two exits we have in the back. And the other one is that we, for reasons because it's going to be recorded, um, you should switch off your uh, phones in uh, air, airline mode or switch it off altogether so it, there's no interference uh, into uh, listening to this lecture. The Department of uh, Social Policy and Intervention has a long history. It had celebrated uh, four years ago its centenary. It was uh, founded uh, in June 1914 as Barnet House in memory of Canon Barnet, an Anglican clergyman and social reformer, at a meeting of his supporters in Sydney Ball's room at St. John's College. 30 years after Toynbee Hall had been founded as a settlement in East London, Barnet House was established in Oxford with the purpose, and I quote, to advance the systematic study of current and social and economic questions. Initially independent of the university, it was a social reformist, one would say in today's words, think tank advocacy group that developed step by step into today's Oxford department that is now the center for teaching and research in the areas of social policy and intervention. Our students come from many countries worldwide and our faculty is really truly multidisciplinary. This year's memorial lecture marks 100 years since Sidney Ball's death. Ball was the first chairman of Barnett House. He was a progressive social reformer, philosophy tutor, and fellow of St. John's College in Oxford. And we're very pleased to see the president of St. John's here, uh, Maggie Snowling. His progressive views really uh, in respect to the social question, his efforts to opening up a university education for the working class, for women, and also for European refugees during the World War I, have inspired many of his followers. The first memorial lecture dates back to 1920. Several distinguished thinkers like Maynard Keynes, Sidney Webb, or William Beveridge spoke on the social and economic problems of that time at Barnett House between the wars. George Smith, former head of department, um, has written a two-page note on the life and work of uh, Sidney Ball, and some of those pictures here and quotes are uh, based on that. Um, Please take a copy of the handout before you leave, if you're interested. And if you have further appetite of, for the long history of Barnet House, you can now find uh, a 
copy as a PDF file of the book written by George and Teresa Smith and Elizabeth Paris uh, uh, on our web pages. Since we have a, a century-long history of engaging in considering social issues, we are very, very pleased to, to have a very distinguished speaker for this year's Memorial Ball Lecture on the future of social policy. We are looking forward to this year's uh, Ball Lecture by Professor Fiona Williams, uh, followed by Q&A, and there will be a reception on the other side uh, of uh, the entrance. Mary Daly, Professor of Sociology and Social Policy and Course Director of our Comparative Social Policy Program, will now introduce uh, our distinguished speaker. Thank you. Uh, can I also say how great it is to see so many of you here and to say a special welcome to the students and also our other guests. So it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce Professor so- uh, Fiona Williams, who is Professor Emeritus of Social Policy at the University of Leeds. She is also Honorary Professor at the Social Policy Research Unit in the University of New South Wales in Australia and research affiliate at Compass, that is the Centre on Migration Policy and Society at this university. Her long and distinguished career has seen her hold high-level posts also at the Open University and the University of Bradford. So Professor Williams has written some of the most important work on gender, race and ethnicity in social policy. People working in the fields on which we teach and research in our department and indeed in other departments will either already know of her work or will learn very quickly of her work once they enter the field. Her 1989 book, Social Policy, A Critical Introduction, is a classic in the field. In it, she develops an analytical framework for the study of social policy which connects capitalism, Uh, patriarchy, imperialism, and the international division of labor. That is work, economy, family, nation race, and their interconnections. She was developing thinking on these topics, which you, I think, agree are so current today, nearly 30 years ago. And I should also say that she was working with an intersectional framework before that actually became popular in social sciences and such a strong trend in social sciences today. Among the other important topics on which she has contributed foundational insights are the place and nature of care in contemporary society, and the transnational political economy of care associated with the migration of care workers. These lines of work she especially pursued when she was director of the Economic and Social Research Council-funded CAVA research group at the University of Leeds, uh, which was, and CAVA stands for Care, Values and the Future of Welfare, which is also uh, uh, tied in in some ways, key ways to our topic this evening. And she also developed these ideas in her role as co-director of uh, the Centre for International Research on Care, Labour and Equalities, uh, and as I said, both located at the University of Leeds. 
Another strand of her work focuses on social movements and collective action, um, how need is articulated in that context, the struggle for recognition, and the way a dynamic is set up and created to which policy has to respond or chooses to respond. Further evidence of her contribution to social policy as a discipline and academic work more broadly is her service as a member of the ESRC's Strategic Research Board and her membership of the Social Policy Panel of the Research Assessment Exercise in 2008. She has received many measures of recognition for her scholarship. For example, she was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE in short, for services to social policy, and I quote, for services to social policy in 2004. In 2016, she was elected Fellow of the British Academy, and she has been an elected Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences since 2003. She has also been honoured by the UK Social Policy Association for her contribution to the discipline. It will be obvious already, I hope, that Professor Williams's work is in the tradition of Sydney Ball and the Barnett House emphasis on the importance of the study of contemporary social and economic problems, the need to think creatively and critically about social reform, and to commit to giving the study of contemporary social and economic problems a central place in the university and academic life at Oxford, but also elsewhere. I can guarantee you that Professor Williams is thinking about social policy and its role and future in a way that few other people are, setting you up highly. So we look forward very much to your lecture and are honoured to have you give uh, the Sydney Ball Lecture on this important anniversary. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mary, for a very generous contribution. Um, yes, it might be, as you've never heard it before, but uh, let's see. Um, it, it is a, a massive honour to be invited to a, a lecture that celebrates the history of social policy inquiry at this university. And it's also a great honour to be in a long line of illustrious names who've given the lecture before me. Now, there are two key terms in my title, social policy and social discord. And much of my lecture will relate to what the social means, what are its dominant powers of, rela of dominant relations of power and inequality, how these are constituted, how they change, and how we frame and research them, and the implications of that for future social policy. So let's begin with social discord. The illustration behind me sums up the, the political nature of this discord at the moment. We have two pictures taking form over the last decade. On the one side, especially in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008 and subsequent austerity measures, there's been an invigoration of community, national and transnational activism for social justice. Been anti-capitalist movements like the Occupy movement, anti-poverty movements, led in some countries by disability organisations. There have been prefigurative experiments in communities and towns, especially in relation to uh, ecology and zero growth and creating <coughs> sustainable local economies, as well as, of course, protests around ecological sustainability and climate change. 
There's been the Black Lives Matter movement, anti-racist and decolonial campaigns, struggles for indigenous and migrant rights. In Hong Kong, there was the umbrella movement for pro-democracy. And there have been international campaigns for LGBTQI rights that have received remarkable cultural recognition, even if they're still uneven and contested, which wouldn't have seemed even possible at the turn of the century. And in terms of feminism, the British activist Beatrix Campbell argues today that today, across the world, a neo-patriarchal and neo-capitalist matrix has assailed and provoked feminism's renaissance. This double movement of being both assailed and provoked is important because the other picture uh, in the illustration shows that sometimes these movements are on the back foot against two forces. Austerity drives that have both normalised growing inequalities and precariousness as a way of life and support for xenophobic, anti-immigrant and authoritarian political parties or movements which deny the very premises of the social movements. It sometimes feels as though we stand at the crossroads between social justice movements on the one side and nationalist authoritarianism, especially this week. And having, to make, having the tools to make sense of this and what it means for social policy is important. I want to put in a third picture here. Grenfell Tower, the tower block in London, where in 2017 a fire in one flat spread throughout the building, causing 72 deaths. It was horrific and shocking. A year on, there are clear material causes for the fire. Many of the materials used in the refurbishment of the building, which was finished in 2016, were combustible and allowed the fire in one, one flat to spread up through the building. There were so many deaths because, on the assumption that the cladding was fireproof, people were t told to stay put. Those that survived ignored this advice. However, the event speaks to wider social policy processes. The application of markets, privatisation, contracting out and public-private partnerships, which has been part of the welfare state change since the 1980s, combined with the diminishing of local authority budgets after austerity, surfaced in particular ways in the Grenfell case. Building inspection and regulation were taken away from local authorities and put out to competitive tender. The management of tenants and buildings moved from the local authorities to public-private partnerships, in this case to a quasi-private company, the Kensington and Chelsea Tenant Management Association organisation, which was effectively the landlord. Value for money became a central organisational principle in both processes, cost-effectiveness and eliminating the red tape of regulation as the enemy of enterprise. One outcome that became clear in the process of refurbishment was the shift from direct accountability between tenants and the local authority as their landlord to a more complex relationship between private contractors, inspectors and the management organisation working with the local authority. In this process, the voices of residents had little resonance. And when residents raised concerns about the guarantees of the safety of refurbishment, they were overlooked. 
residents felt that the management organisation wasn't run on behalf of the tenants or by the tenants, but just to manage the tenants. People who complained were seen as troublemakers. One tenant said after the fire, the management organisation just think these people are nothing. They don't matter. They felt that power was stacked against them. If they'd wanted to take legal action, their access to legal aid no longer existed because it had, like the fire services, like the community groups, been cut. Lack of trust, respect and accountability was what marked all of this between the residents and the landlord, the building companies and the local authority. However, this process needs to be placed in a wider context. Many of the residents, most of whom were tenants, were amongst the poorest in the borough. That London borough dramatically represents the widening of inequalities that has taken place over the past 30 years, containing both the richest 10% and those at the bottom 4% of multiple deprivation index in England. But these aren't simply economic inequalities. Many of the residents were from minority ethnic groups or were recent migrants or were refugees. In fact, the first dead person to be identified, Mohammed al-Hajali, was a Syrian refugee. Some were single parents, some were disabled people living on benefits or otherwise low-income working-class Londoners. Stir into this fact that attitudes to the, uh, uh, towards these groups have hardened over the past two decades, not only by government policies, such as the very hostile environment towards migrants, which spills over to long-settled minorities, but culturally as well, the denigration of poor people and those on benefits as losers. Hate crime based on race and disability have increased over the past four years. It's a case of people don't matter. And I'm going to put on rapper Plan B's Ill Manners, uh, uh, part of the lyrics which are about all of this. Um, in addition, as council housing has deteriorated, tower blocks have acquired a degraded image, problematised as centres of antisocial and criminal behaviour, and for this reason, low in the choice of social housing tenants. According to... Danny Dawling, black and minority ethnic groups are disproportionately housed in tower blocks, reflecting their economic advantage, but also direct and indirect racism in the housing allocation processes. In much of the reading I've done around Grenfell, it's been common to recall the ideal of council housing in the pre-neoliberal post-war Britain, where, as Anarin Bevan, the Minister for Health in Britain's post-war government, said... The doctor, the grocer, the butcher and the farm labourer would all live in the same street. And in a similar vein, the MP for Tottenham, David Lammy, in the aftermath of the fire, made a moving speech in the House of Commons and when interviewed recalled the council housing of his childhood in Tottenham where public services were in essential in enabling solidarity, civic pride and a sense of community. He said... People want the social back. However, as John Clark has commented in an insightful piece on the Social Policy Association's blog page, while Lamy is right to mark this unravelling of the social over 40 years, recalling a golden age of post-war welfare might not be quite so helpful because that age too had its groups who were marginalised and not listened to. What is more important 
is to reimagine a future social policy. But imagining transformation can't come out of thin air. I want to take you on a journey that begins to reflect on how the discipline of social policy has understood the social, and from that to consider what tools for transformative thinking now exist. I start that journey with, I'll just, I start that journey <coughs> with the critiques made by social justice movements of the post-war welfare state some 40 years ago in the 70s and 80s. I start here not because of nostalgia for the past, but quite the opposite. Some of the critiques made then of the Keynesian post-war welfare state have continuing relevance for today. These came out of the new left and new social mobilizations that had developed internationally. The African-American Civil Rights Movement in the 50s, the South African Anti-Apartheid Movement, the 68 Students and Anti-Vietnam War Movement, and they included the second wave of feminism, anti-racist, post-colonial activism, <coughs> gay liberation, and disability movements. In Britain, these new social movements had a particular significance for social policy because their collective struggles were often about the welfare state. By challenging the taken-for-granted sexist, racist, ableist, or homophobic discourses underpinning social policy and practice, they revealed the ways in which the universalism and citizenship of the post-war welfare state didn't fully extend to all social groups equally. Indeed, often marginalisation was reproduced in social policy, making them second-class citizens. So, for example, in Britain, the feminist campaign for legal and financial independence called for an overhaul of the social security and taxation system, which for most part regarded married and cohabiting women as dependents on their male partners. Disability organisations campaigned against institutionalisation and the ways in which they were made to feel dependent by medical and welfare services. Anti-racist activism involved campaigns against discrimination in private housing and racist allocation processes in public housing, against the stereotyping of cultural differences. These were contestations not only about the logics of redistribution in the welfare state, who gets what, but also about the connected issue of the recognition of people's and groups' moral worth, their respect, their dignity, and their right to representation. And while they were critical of the welfare state, they were also for state welfare. Paraphrasing a, a famous pamphlet of the time um, called In and Against the State, they were in and against the welfare state. This summed up the contradictory experiences of the welfare state as both emancipating on the one side, yet reproducing the class, gender, racialized, and other hierarchies <laughs> in which people found themselves. So these critiques were far-reaching. They expanded the notion of what the social was to include gender, race, disability, as well as class. Many of the, in the 80s, many of these analyses found that these weren't single modalities of inequality, but deeply bound up with each other, such that class and race reconstitute the experience of gender, for better, for worse. And this is now, as Mary said, termed intersectionality, a concept now back in play and that I shall come back to myself. But just to say that it was this method that permitted a deeper understanding of one of the central issues in social policy, the relationship between the principle of universalism 
and the reality of diversity. Second, in analytical terms, they helped reconfigure the parameters of social policy beyond the state and the market, as Mary just, uh, as Mary just mentioned, to include the private sphere of the family and also uh, to interrogate the meanings, the boundaries and the histories of nation and nationhood and its con connection to imperialism and citizenship. There were many ways in which the welfare state represented Britain's civilising mission brought home as empire declined. So there were new par parameters, the domains of family, work and nation. Also, many of these struggles set up new provisions, such as women's health centres, women's refuges, minority group uh, support groups for, for people experiencing mental health uh, problems. And many of these attempted to establish a new sort of social relations of welfare, a way in which providers and users were more equal. There was no hierarchy, there, there was no dis discrimination, and new social relations of welfare. And this also spoke to a prefigurative aspect to critical thinking and practice derived from early 19th century utopian traditions of, of reformers, not just about critique, not just about legislating against discrimination but, but, or being allowed full access to rights, but asking how far do the existing voices and practices of resistance allow us to prefigure and reimagine uh, a better world. So, for example, as early as 1981, Anna Coote was writing that if we had to start again with uh, an alternative economic strategy, it shouldn't be on the regeneration of full-time work for men, but how to look after those who need care and support and how to reallocate uh, labour and wealth within and outside the household and then how to structure paid employment around these. And these led particularly uh, to the disability organisations to, to demand democracy in the very delivery of welfare for representation and voice, adding a third R to recognition and redistribution. So what happened to these critiques? How come what we were saying 40 years ago or some of us, old enough to see, and in the light of the Grenfell tragedy, we're still saying it. Well, in political terms, what followed from the 1990s into the first decade of this century was a neoliberalist, marketised, managerialised, and modernised social policy system that took hold. Trade unions were weakened, and much of this local activism declined. It didn't actually disappear. Social movements moved their struggles up the political hierarchy into European Union or global politics. There are important developments uh, around equality policies in the uh, EU uh, and around human rights, the Declaration of Women's Rights at the Beijing Conference in 95, the UN Convention on the Rights of, the, of Persons with Disabilities in 2006. However, there was a strong political and cultural current that assumed that we had now entered, by the turn of the century, a post-feminist or post-racial phase. The problem now was with too much political correctness or too much cultural diversity. 
Also, intellectually, within the social sciences, the meta-narratives and grand theories associated with capitalism, patriarchy, and imperialism lost their intellectual purchase to a more post-structuralist approach to culture and subjectivity, something that was quite challenging for a discipline rooted in a structural approach. However, within the discipline of social policy, these developments had other effects. First, insofar as the discipline has a predisposition to research the agenda of governments, then from the turn of the century, this focused on opportunities for paid work for women and disabled people. It, it was about ethnicity and integration. And the focus of many of these forms of inequality became narrowed into an anti-discrimination, social inclusion and integration approach. The social movement critiques also became fragmented and siloed, in part because of the demands of universities that required more intensive specialisation, both for career advancement and for research assessment processes. <coughs> more particularly, the point at which these critiques had established themselves in the 1990s, the theoretical core of the discipline moved into cross-national comparative research, influenced particularly by the work of Esping Anderson. And while this massively important uh, area of work was, was very significant, it restricted its purview to class and economic inequalities. Now, in some ways, this wasn't a bad thing because it provoked feminist scholarship and there were some very good developments in uh, comparative social policy that looked at gender and class. However, other social relations around race, ethnicity, migration, also disability and sexuality, were far less amenable to the conceptual parameters and quantitative measures of this new development. In the context of the mid-90s, with a rise in migration and multiculturalism, as well as an emerging backlash to these, especially in terms of welfare chauvinism, the claims of new nationalist conditions to eligibility to welfare, which were things that were being documented by migration and racism scholars, I think a vacuum opened up in this theoretical core of the discipline. Added to this, the next major tranche of important mainstream social policy interventions, I'm not saying that any of these things weren't important, at the turn of the century, were focused upon the restructuring of the welfare state, what had happened, the move from Keynesian to neoliberal. And whilst these were more open to different inequalities, they tended also to view them more narrowly. So, for example, new social risks became a way of acknowledging the changes that had challenged the post-war welfare state, greater female labour force participation, an ageing society, increasing single parents, as well as new vulnerable risk groups, which included migrants and disabled people. Now, whilst these certainly pose challenges, this formulation tends to focus on the relationship of these groups to the labour market as human capital and to strip the categories of any claims they might make in their own right. As Anne Orloff has commented in relation to feminism, in mainstream social policy, concepts of care, gendered power, dependency and interdependency have been resisted. 
This was even more pronounced in race, ethnicity and migration. I'm not saying that there wasn't a lot of work in this area. I'm talking about how the discipline developed. Yet, I want to argue that piecemeal as they are, there have been developments in critical approaches in this century which have taken up issues of the social in new and different ways that are important for social policy. What they have in common is their attention to the complexity and multiplicity of power and inequality, to the connections between the cultural, social, economic and political forms of marginalisation. They're often formed by local and transnational activism and they point to many of the issues by which we might assess ideas for future social policy. Elsewhere, I've referred to these as five turns, the turn to agency, intersectionality, ethics, global and post-colonial contexts, and utopian thinking. Now, I'm not going to go through these in turn. What I want to do is to provide studies that reflect these turns and help us understand the nature of problems a future social policy needs to address. And my, one of my arguments is that we need a more integrated, critical approach to social policy. I want to start with agency, because I see that as a key turning point. Because, as you're probably aware, when neoliberal politics articulated the notion of the welfare subject as a consumer, exercising choice to meet a diversity of individual needs, it exposed how underdeveloped the concepts of agency and identity were in social policy research. These are tended to focus on structural causes and measurements of social issues and implicitly regard people as the passive beneficiaries or not of welfare provision. So developing a new paradigm was important in which welfare subjects were seen as creative and having agency, negotiating, developing their own strategies of welfare management and in doing so helping to reconstitute the forms of provision they use a process that's now referred to as welfare bricolage. It was influenced by ideas of, about intersectionality, that is, how welfare users and welfare providers inhabit multiple social categories of gender, ethnicity, class, and so on. And that welfare subjects bring with them personal histories and experiences. Now, this wasn't just theoretical, these points. It was about coming to grips with developing policies that go with the grain of people's lives. And politically, this development spoke to a welfare citizen exercising their voice in democratic welfare services rather than the welfare consumer exercising choice, etc. And what's being challenged here is the very basis of agency as the rational weighing up of choices on a cost-benefit basis, homo economicus. Instead, we're offered an understanding of individuals not simply acting as individuals, but in their capacity to act, their <coughs> reasoning, their actions and their practices, they express themselves in both individual and relational terms. In other words, agency is embedded in identities, networks, solidarities and cultures. All this stimulated qualitative and ethnographic research to elicit people's own research uh, experiences of welfare. 
And this has been particularly important for marginalised groups such as uh, children in poverty and people with intellectual disabilities. Also important in the whole area of poverty, what poverty means to those who experience it, rendering people as subjects rather than objects of their lives. A shift, as Ruth Lister has called it, from counting poor people to making them count. This more nuanced qualitative work has also informed quantitative investigations. One excellent example of an analysis using an intersectional approach in its qualitative and quantitative data is a report published last year on the unequal effects of austerity in Britain. Oops, there. And um, this very good report says in its conclusions, for black and minority ethnic women, gender inequalities intersect with and compound racial inequalities, making these women particularly (coughs) vulnerable to to, uh, cuts in benefits, tax credits and public services. This report shows the extent to which BME women and the poorest BME women in particular are disproportionately affected by some of the spending cuts since 2010. Effectively, just taking into account tax and benefit changes, black and Asian women in the poorest household will over two, 10 years since 2010 have lost around £2,000 per annum. The importance of this study <coughs> is that it provides a new understanding of the effects of austerity, especially in terms of welfare cuts, because many of the big and impactful inequality studies, such as Thomas Piketty's wonderful, powerful analysis in 2014 of the inequalities of capitalism, don't actually mention gender, minority ethnicity, migration or disability. The picture shows us how it's a combination of care responsibilities combined with racism and sexism, especially in the labour market, which exposes these women to greater vulnerability. And the qualitative data, which was interestingly carried out by trained peer researchers from the very communities where it was researched, um, showed both material and psychological effects of greater precarity and a more punishing benefit system. It's something that every student should read. A second analysis of marginalisation and subordination in contemporary Britain is Imogen Tyler's book, Revolting Subjects, in which she argues this marginalisation and subordination produce a dynamic she calls social abjection. And this is where particular groups who experience poverty, refugees, unemployed young people, disabled people, gypsies and travellers, are transformed into symbolic and material scapegoats, chavs, scroungers, scum, and so on. They are the object of derision and disgust. These processes build on historical roots of subordination, especially around class, gender, racialization, and disability. But in the context of neoliberal austerity, it's everyday neoliberal governance combined with media discourses which contribute to the erosion of these groups' citizenship rights. This is a sociological study, but she employs a psychosocial analysis not only to describe the psychological damage of social objection on these groups, but the way in which it damages us all. How general social and economic insecurities of the population 
are harnessed and hardened into a form of public consent for punishing and disenfranchising particular groups in poverty. But this is not without resistance, as revolting subjects find ways to reconstitute themselves, not only as citizens with rights, as she says, but as subjects of value. These resistances themselves are often embodied, like the deportee who sewed up his lips as a sign of his lack of voice, or the naked protests of women at Yarlswood Immigration Removal Centre in 2008 against the deportation of a Burundian woman and her British-born baby. Female nakedness linked this protest to that used in 2002 by women on the Escrivos oil facility in the Niger Delta in Nigeria as part of their struggle for compensation for the environmental destruction of their communities. And it was linked again to the USA in 2010 when a group of women peace activists called Code Pink carried out a naked protest against an oil spillage in the Gulf. Tyler sees these transnational protests as a life-affirming resistance to both abjection and the political economy of neoliberalism, a sort of maternal commons. Let me now link this to the development in ethics and how we can see again the connections between different areas of contestation which serve to trouble and challenge dominant liberal and economic theories. The first is the ethic of care. This emerged from earlier feminist critiques of the hidden inequalities associated with women's unpaid and paid care work. It critiques liberal theories for their accounts of the self and autonomy and justice as being based on an abstract idea of an atomised individual who has no connections to others, no connections and no responsibilities to others. In contrast, care ethics reconceptualises these concepts in relational terms. That is to say, we act and reason in terms not only of ourselves, but in relation to others. Autonomy, in these terms, is not individualist self-sufficiency, but the act of self-determination. This provides an understanding of care, not simply as women's work, but as a universal practice. We all provide and receive care. As a collective social good, which presupposes human flourishing as central to individual and collective sustainability. As such, care ethics offer a transformative critique of the economistic and productivist-driven approaches of welfare state, in which the logic of paid work, getting people off benefits and into work, determines the nature and conditions of social policy. In a similar way, the demand for environmental justice makes challenges of welfare states, and forgive me here for simplifying a whole range of different positions. Its focus is on how the degradation of the planet's resources has intensified forms of global and geopolitical inequalities. And as such, it challenges, or some uh, of these ethics challenge, the model of economic growth which underpins capitalist economies and, relatedly, the dependency of welfare states 
on productivism and consumerism as markers of progress and growth. This is elaborated in Ian Goff's excellent recent study of the eco-social political economy, which I shall come back to. There are clear parallels between this and the care ethics argument. Both highlight sustainability and presume interdependence and solidarity as a way of being and the basis to social justice. They invoke care for the other and care for the world, as well as care for future generations. They emphasise citizenship based on participatory democracy and a society reorganised to create the conditions of time, security and space to restore the value of care and of human labour. Furthermore, climate change has dramatically pointed to our global ethical obligations. In the same way that the increase in migration and refugees highlights the constraints and conflicts that adhere to welfare systems that are nation-based, so climate change strategies imply support for cosmopolitan ethics and for, for future human and non-human needs. Now, as with care and ecology, there are lots of different approach to cosmopolitan ethics, um, but in my view, any approach also needs to be informed by a decolonial understanding. That's to say, an acknowledgement of how the historical weight of colonisation and colonialism tips the balance of power in any uh, sort of weighing up of, of ethics. For example, the understanding of climate change needs to be developed not only from a Western perspective, but from a perspective of the global South. But in all three ethics, here we have some indication as to how we might think differently about the welfare state, the economic system, the basis of solidarity and equality. As an example of the significance of global and geopolitical inequalities for social policy, I want to briefly refer to the phenomenon of migrant care work. Where once the study of care and care practices were focused on personal relationships and national policies, these are now part of a much bigger transnational picture with the global phenomenon of migrant care workers. These are, are women mainly who move from low and middle income countries to provide domestic health and care work in households and institutions of richer countries. There is now hardly a high income country across the world whose cleaning and caring, as well as parts of its health care, is not done by women mainly from low- and middle-income countries. Even Japan, that most assertively ethno-nationalist of societies, is now recruiting migrant workers to look after older people. I've been studying this for the last 20 years since the increase began, and it provides a lens on many of the changes that challenge social policy. The global increase in women as wage earners, the needs for care, both in develop, developed countries because of ageing societies, declining fertilities, social expenditure cuts and so on, but also in poorer countries with the growing reliance on a female wage because of the effects of stru structural adjustment policy, environmental damage, poverty and unemployment. Almost half the world's 232 million migrants are women and most of them go into care and domestic work. This work carries all the hallmarks of non-standard employment. Temporary, part-time, precarious, low-wage, 
without collective organisation, a precarious, precariousness which is intensified with more restrictive migration re regimes. It re also reflects changes in care policies in welfare states, the commodification and marketisation of care, and the move from public services to providing cash payments for private care and domestic work. And it's those with least bargaining power, migrant or working class or minority ethnic women, who take this work up. While migrant and care, migrant care and domestic work may relieve the stresses of work-life balance in Western welfare state, and even meet the aspirations of individual migrants wanting to support their families back home, it does so at considerable cost of depleting the care resources of those poorer countries. So this is also a story, on the one hand, of continuities, the ongoing devaluation of care labour as women's unskilled work, combined with a persistent racialised servitude in which minority <coughs> ethnic women have traditionally been recruited into care and, and domestic work. But on the other hand, it's also been part of a transnational political economy of care, which includes big business of care provision and recruitment agencies as states uh, as well as states who are involved in the recruiting and sending of migrant workers. This transnational space is also a political space where local transnational networks of care and domestic uh, workers, grassroots activists, combine forces to push for the ILO um, convention passed in 2011 on decent work for domestic workers. And this set... Uh, standards to be ratified and implemented by member states, of which this country hasn't done this, for rights to decent working conditions and collective organisation. It's been extremely important. It's allowed for voice and representation of domestic workers in formulating both the convention and has created a connection between local activism and global politics. Let's take this upper scale now. And here I want to offer an analysis which makes intersecting connections relevant to this phenomenon on the global scale. I offer it as an example of making conceptual alliances on a macro scale that doesn't reduce the phenomenon to a monolith of neoliberal economics. And that is how we understand the crisis or crises. When the global financial crisis occurred in 2008, most analysts focused on its economic causes and consequences. However, the philosopher Nancy Fraser framed it in different terms. Recalling Carl Polanyi's work written in 1944 on the self-destructive impulse behind capitalism being its capacity to disembed and devalue land, labour and money and turn them into what he called fictitious commodities, she argues that the same impulse can be seen today in the global crises of finance, uh, ecology and care. Thus, speculation led to the global financial crisis in which investment was destabilised and devalued with the subsequent intensification of austerity policies. Similarly, exploitation of the world's natural resources has devalued the planet 
and contributed to an environmental crisis. And the commodification of care has, has meant that care too has become a fictitious commodity. And in the case of migrant care work, disembedded and devalued across the globe. These crises are linked by the ways in which each jeopardizes security, human solidarity, and sustainability. They're also interconnected in their knock-on effects. For example, austerity has given rise to public expenditure cuts, climate change and collapses, collapsing economies propel migration, care migration solves con some countries' care crisis at the other's expense. To these three, I would add a fourth, and that is the crisis of migration. Although general international migration started to slow down a little after 2007, at the same time, refugee migration started to accelerate. Now, the crisis of migration isn't migration itself, but of the political responses to this. It's led to a political discourse in which the economic costs and benefits of migration predominate over the ethics of solidarity, interdependence, and hospitality. Migrants have also become fictitious commodities. The political debate set state sovereignty against humanitarianism. Think Brexit, think Trump, think Hungary. And this creates discord, it jeopardizes discourses of solidarity, of welfare, of sustainability, of social protection, and human rights. These are shaping changes in immigration policies across the world, which are becoming more restrictive, not only towards unskilled workers, um, but also in limiting migrant eligibility to basic welfare provision. Increasing deportation is going on in many countries, and in fact, in some parts of the world, migrant care workers have actually become itinerant care workers, where they move from one country to another. What is useful about this framework, in my view, is that it makes social reproduction and care and ecology and migration as central to an analysis of the crisis as the financial aspects of neoliberalism. If I, that was a bit... Uh, but you understand what I mean. It makes conceptual alliances, in other words, across these different arenas of social, cultural and political life within a non-reductive political economy framework. And as such, it helps us think what social justice requires and how to attend to it. So my question is now, having mapped the nature of the social and its complex, intersecting and multi-scalar inequalities, what proposals exist for an alternative approach to social policy? Do they account for this broader and spatially wider view of the social and its inequalities? Are they prefigurative? Do they build on struggles in the here and now? Do they provide an alternative, more democratic and inclusive picture of, in the social relations of welfare? Now, as I see it, there are three main types of proposal on the table at the moment. One is a universal basic income. The second is a more... A universal basic income is an income given by the state to all adults without conditions to enable them to live above the poverty line. 
a radical social investment strategy, that's my own term I've used, is a broader version that's, uh, that's being elaborated of uh, the Nordic social democratic welfare state with investment into building human capital for productivity such as lifelong learning, labour market activation, childcare and so on, and underpinned by commitments to social cohesion and inclusion. And there's a third, an eco-social commons. I haven't got time to address them all, so I'm going to address the third, which comes closest to the gist of, of my arguments. The invocation of the commons refers to the reclaiming of the world's resources, land, water, space, time, creativity, public services, care, and so on, from their increasing commodification and depletion. The commons is a concept that can bring together different areas of critique and resistance and imagine possibilities for transformation. In simple terms applied to the welfare state, it refers to the fact that we can't rely on the, the idea that the state can simply be captured by progressive forces, but rather that the state should be pressed to enhance the commons, to reassert collective public interests and to enable collective public action. In this way, in this vein, a broad analysis provided by Francine Mestrum, the social commons, redraws social protection as the social commons. She starts with the ILO proposals for a global social protection floor. And these, she argues, represented a significant buffer against, or represent a significant buffer against neoliberalism in elaborating rights to essential health care and income security across the globe for all. But they do, for all in need, I should say, but they don't go far enough. Like UBI, she argues that the global social protection floor is based on rights and guarantees for individuals, but she argues neither address the collective dimension of the commons, interdependence, solidarity, and these, she says, also require support and protection. Her proposals include universal contributions and benefits which are multi-scaled from local to global, involving national and international redistribution, emphasising alliances and collective struggles and democratic participation, including not only contributory and non-contributory systems, education, health and social services, but also protection of the environment. She's uh, informed very much by the Buen Vivir movement in Latin America. The social commons wouldn't be subsumed under the, the economy, she says, but would shape it by, for example, regulating agricultural prices, land affordability and accessibility, sanitation and communication. Now, a powerful set of arguments along similar lines comes from Ian Goff's recent book, Heat, Greed and Human Need. And he sets out an agenda for a more ecologically sustainable future. This links the threat of climate change, capitalist accumulation and economic growth with the decline in social well-being and equality. All three need to be tackled together, he argues. He proposes a three-stage transition from green economic growth through to recomposing people's consumption and finally to a post-growth economy. This would be combined with redistribution and meeting needs for well-being, which would require state intervention to cap excessive incomes, 
and spread the dividend from ownership of wealth and capital to all citizens. It would, along with technology and reduced work hours, create more time to be involved in the social economy, time for learning, caring, community, creativity. And this would be supported by social services that are co-produced. In other words, people are directly involved in the development and delivery of social and care provision. Between the state and the local economy is the deliberative sphere through which debate takes place on how human needs should be met and, res and resources sustained and to develop the social commons. He's actually informed by Mestrom's work. These are important interventions and in fact all three, even the ones that I didn't mention, are better than what we have at the moment. I applaud the commitment of social justice and eradicating poverty in all the proposals. I'm relieved that gender equality and care are central in the idea of the eco-social commons. But I'm concerned that the cluster of issues that attend to racism, migration and geopolitical inequalities don't receive as much attention. They certainly don't in the universal basic income and social investment proposals, where also there's little reference to democratic welfare services. So let me end, <laughs> let me end by addressing what all of this might mean for those of you who study or research or practice social policy. In arguing that the time is ripe for new thinking and applying the principle of hope to our work, I think we might take our lead from what marks many local and transnational struggles today. And this includes the attempt to create and reconceptualize democracy, building a democracy from the bottom up, creating horizontal alliances and networks. And these politics are increasingly signified by the idea of intersectionality as a political practice, how this raises the importance for feminists and others of alliances with environmentalists, anti-capitalists, anti-racists, and so on, and which requires dialogue and deliberation of what's being called, in some places, transversal, not universal, but transversal politics, in which the specificities of different positions are respected whilst common ground is sought. The implications for the study of social policy involve a parallel movement, towards conceptual alliances on what I call three-dimensional thinking. Conceptual alliances can bring together the vertical multiscalar analysis from the local, national and global together with horizontal analyses of intersections across social categories, policy regimes and the crises that hang over them. These alliances need to pay special attention critical attention to the relationship between migration and social rights of welfare states, which would be rooted in a historical understanding of nationhood, colonialism and imperialism, which I argue has continued to be neglected. Within this grid are the spaces within the weft and weave of horizontal and vertical are the spaces for contestation, which point to the third dimension, which is future thinking. The argument for an integrated approach to a critical integrated approach does not mean returning to meta-narratives nor embracing new, every new perspective uncritically, but examining with vigor, vigorous, imaginative and passionate scholarship the salience that past and present challenges have for the future 
of social policy. And that future is yours. Thank you very much.